Hi there, I'm Peyton Saez, and you're listening to Welcome to the Afem House, a podcast from the Afro-American Cultural Center at Yale that seeks to explore stories of the past, present, and future told by the Black people who know them best. Hi everyone, welcome back to Welcome to the Afem House. Y'all may know already, but my name is Peyton. I'm a senior, well, I'm a senior now in Paul Murray College, majoring in Afem, and today I'm speaking with Chris Rabb. So, thank Hello. you. Hi, thank you for speaking with us today. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad to be back at the house. Yeah, and if you could give us a brief introduction, like who you are, what you do. Who am I? I'm a, uh, I'm a Yale alum, Calhoun College, 1992. Oh. <laughs> yes, but the, uh, the bad old days when uh, white supremacists were honored with colleges and such. Um, so yes, pre-Hopper. And uh, I was uh, an AFAM major too, concentrating in history. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. Yeah. Um, I uh, took classes with uh, the uh, iconic, they called him Master T, <laughs> Professor Robert Ferris Thomas. Um, and uh, it was one of the more popular classes on campus understand he passed in 2021 yeah and uh but he introduced me to capoeira and i've been practicing capoeira the afro-brazilian martial arts since 1988 since i first saw it on old campus and yeah 1988 when he brought some capoeiristas from um, brazil um, to uh, demonstrate and show how it is an outgrowth of afro-atlantic trans uh, transatlantic uh, diaspora culture and I was hooked and I'm 53 still doing it wow that's amazing so it's called capoeira 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 okay yeah yeah that sounds amazing yes have you seen it I I don't think I think I probably have I just didn't know what it was so it looks like uh, break dancing um, it's very fluid martial art it was a martial art disguised as a dance so that enslaved africans in brazil could practice their liberation under the noses of unsuspecting white folk and then they used those skills to um, kill white folk um, and to uh, secure their own freedom wow wait i think i've definitely i've definitely seen something seen a video of it but like I guess I did. I hadn't internalized that it was capoeira, but that's really, really cool. Yeah, and this was one of the major places in the U.S. for capoeira. Um, Here in New Haven. In New Haven, because wow, Professor Thompson, um, given his work, was able to connect folks from Brazil, black folk from Brazil who had moved to New York. New York was really the epicenter of capoeira. Uh, and eventually Oakland, the Bay Area, and California. And uh, so generations of black Yaleys have been doing, have been exposed to capoeira through uh, Professor Thompson um, over many, many years. And so um, started in the 70s, I started in the 80s. I'm not sure how, what the connection may still be, but Yale was one of the epicenters of promoting capoeira. Wait, that's amazing. So I actually am at a loss for words. That's actually really, really amazing. And I kind of want to try and like get them to bring that back here. 
I think we definitely can. Yes, absolutely. Happy to help. Oh, okay. So that'll, we're going to segue into kind of like the meat of today's episode. So just like just get, getting to know you, like getting to like speak with you. Mm-hmm. So we're going to start from the very beginning. So like what made you want to come to Yale, like apply to Yale, and then ultimately decide to attend college here? Well, th- three things. Um, I think the first was I went to the lead program in business. I think there's probably a lot of black students who um, um, went through that program. Um, they took uh, gifted student of color um, from high schools around the country, and they sent us to a college campus somewhere away from where we lived for a month, um, about 30 kids and uh between the summer, um, the summer before our senior year of high school. So they sent me to UCLA and I had a ball and the director of the program there was a uh, brother named Muhammad, um, Abdullah Muhammad. And um, when he was here as an undergrad, his name was Ron Hatchett, he converted to Islam and I knew him as uh, Muhammad Abdullah rather. And um, he uh, was a very formative figure um, for me in that um, month-long uh, program, and he encouraged me to apply to Yale. He also encouraged me to apply early, and I was fortunate enough to get in. And um, um, second, secondly, my grandmother, um, her father uh, went to Springfield College in Springfield, Massachusetts, but he had always wanted to go to Yale. And so I think my grandma um, kind of put a little pressure on me to apply as well. Um, they weren't elect, uh, my grandfather, my great-grandfather was born around 1890s or something, so there weren't too many black folk, <laughs> you know, one or two back in the day. Yeah. So it wasn't really something he, um, you know, thought he could uh, get into, so that was the second. And then the third was I visited Yale and uh, I saw black student life, and it was very, it was very compelling to me. I enjoyed myself. I got to see the campus, and so for those three reasons, I applied, and I was very fortunate to get in. Um, it's radically harder to get in to now than it was when I was there, and it was not not easy in the '80s. But it's radically harder to get into Yale, so I'm fortunate that. Uh, I made the right choice. It was good for me, and I had amazing um, experiences here, mixed experiences. It was not all, you know, milk and honey. Yeah. Yeah, we'll do that to you. Yes. <laughs> yes, as will all predominantly white institutions. Yeah. Yeah. So you said you did LEAD, I think? Yeah, the LEAD program in business. It, oh, okay. it basically teaches students of color to understand um, business, to some extent, you know, the stock market would have you, but it's really exposing folks to a college setting for those folks who had never been um, on a campus and also understanding the world of business. Now, I was not interested in going into corporate America or Wall Street, um, never have, never will. <laughs> but I but I come from a family of entrepreneurs and had um, fashioned myself a, a budding entrepreneur and just, you know, just intellectually curious. And it was great to leave Chicago, my hometown, and go out to sunny LA. So I couldn't complain. 
Oh wow, that sounds amazing. Yeah. So, t- so for our next question, I'm gonna ask you just like, what was it like being a black student in, well, in it's now called Hopper, formerly Calhoun mm-hmm. College, mm-hmm. in the '80s. Like, what was that experience like for you? You know the. You heard about the story of the two fish swimming, and they're just swimming along, and one fish says, "You know what? I love water." And the other fish says, "What's water?" Oh, I do. I definitely have heard of it. Yes, yeah, yes, yes, like, yes, yes. If it's all you know, what's water, right? And so, I, I went from one predominantly white institution. It was a, I went to a Catholic high school, and I'm not Catholic. I'm not religious. I had no understanding of Catholic culture, and I got dropped into this very um, adverse situation for four years. Then I leave there and I go to Yale. (laughs) So I was kind of primed um, because I was a fish out of water. Like I I didn't feel like I belonged, but I found the house, Mm -hmm. and it, it all came together, but Calhoun was diff- <laughs> very different than the house because unlike the house, Calhoun was not very welcoming. I walk into Calhoun and you see pictures, you see stained glass windows of black folk. Before you get into um, the dining hall, there was a stained glass window of a black man kneeling in front of Calhoun, like in chains, like looking up to him like you've saved me with the capital behind um, the uh, left shoulder, I think, of, of Calhoun. And I was floored. I'm like, what is this? And I went to the, the head, of, um, head of school, which then was called Master. We called them Masters. Whoa. Yeah, so I went wow. to Master McMullen, who was a historian. He was probably about 100 then. Oh. <laughs> and I said, you know, um, this this got to go. This is a problem. Um, this is this is offensive. This is unacceptable. And he was very curmudgeonly. And he's like, you know, what are you complaining about? This is history. You can't change history. I'm like, no, nah, that's not cool. And to his credit, he actually removed the image and I was shocked because he didn't really seem compelled by my argument, but it was gone. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> we can't find it. Like something like that, like no one's just taking it, going up there and taking it down. Yeah, It has to be removed. And this is Yale, right? There's archives and such. There's places for everything. <laughs> but we can't find it. Maybe you'll help me find it. But this was around 89, 90. Oh. Um, while I was an undergrad and he removed it and I'm like I went um, I went to my grand folks house in Baltimore I think for Thanksgiving break and I was and there they were big civil rights activists and troublemakers and I said hey guess what I did I got them to to remove the the image of of the black man kneeling in, in chains to John C. Calhoun and my grandmother looked at me with such disappointment. Oh. And I'm like, what? What? Right? What? Aren't you proud of me? They're like, listen, 
you can't you cannot allow for institutional amnesia black folk need to know the environment in which they are navigating if you remove all the things you don't like how do you know what to fight against because just because the images are gone does not mean the substance of the oppression is gone and so we need to remind ourselves on a daily basis what we're fighting for and that means that all future generations of black students won't know the history and that blew me away i was so upset and i but it also it they shared this gem with me that it's we don't need to accept a calhoun college that's not really was the point but the point was we need to know from whence we came what was the pr progression of things to where we are now so we have to be reminded i i really like that um i i feel like right now in this present moment in 2023 i think certain like groups are still doing like trying to keep alive that history there's like a pre-orientation program called cultural connections i just heard about i was that, a yeah. part of it okay. i was i was a cc mother okay like, i was in charge of kind so of you all learned about this stuff yeah the hidden history and such yes but what about the white students oh there were some white students in CC this year because um, it's just kind of like they made pre-orientation programs like mandatory for entire like the entire Yale student body like okay. coming in their first year. So there are definitely some white kids who learned this history. But I feel like even when I speak with some of my white friends about some of the things I learned because we do like a critical history tour and we walk around like Yale's campus and Cal we walked in Calhoun Mm -hmm. Grace Hopper yep. as Calhoun College and we see the like the Calhoun yeah we see his like his like bust like over this the yeah. college office like where students go for like to yeah. speak to, to speak to their dean to speak to the head of college just like just a daily like call like the big college needs yeah it's like Calhoun staring right at you yeah it's he's a creepy looking dude he really and is it was really evil like there there are ranges of awfulness um but that was abject awfulness I mean he was one of the one of the enslavers connected to Yale who be who believed to his dying breath that slavery was the best thing that ever happened to black people. And that kind of <laughs> moral clarity for the, for him wow. was nothing. I mean, it was that's really what he believed. He was an awful person. Uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson was an awful person, too, who was, you know, like yeah, a, Sa Sally Hemings. Yeah. Yeah. But. He, and he was a hypocrite, but there was a there was a tension that he acknowledged to some extent his hypocrisy. Still an awful person, but had some self awareness. Yeah. Some. Yeah. Um, John C. Calhoun was like, you know, black people are savages, and you know they should be lucky that we civilized them to the extent that black people can be civilized. And Yale made that decision eighty years after he died to name a residential college after him. And do you know the reason they? They chose John C. Calhoun. He was an alumni. Well, sure. Yeah. yeah. They're going to choose yeah, an alum. An alum. But yeah. do you know why they chose that alum to honor? I really don't know. It's a fair question, right? You know, so it's because um, he was the, the most influential Yaley of the 19th century to graduate from Yale. Oh. It was just about status, right? Which is a really important takeaway for those of us who are connected to Yale. All the wonderful things we may have experienced, all the contributions that people from 
the Yale community have provided society, what have you. At the end of the day, Yale feeds on status and power and influence. And power in and of itself is not inherently good or bad. It is a tool. And that tool can be used to promote slavery or, or black joy yeah. or anything in between. And they chose him. They didn't care that he was a white supremacist. They didn't care that he didn't really like Yale that much. They didn't care that he didn't give a lot of money to Yale. But he was a baller. He was a politician um, who went to some of the highest offices in the land, and that affirmed how dope Yale is. Look, we got an alum who's you know vice president and secretary of war and a U.S. senator. Okay, but he also wanted to secede from our nation. And in the 1930s, well after the Civil War, well after the First World War, you're going to honor a guy who didn't even believe in the United States of America. Yeah. That tells you the sickness of blind ambition and power for the sake of power. And that's part of the kind of the legacy of Yale. Like, we have to get away from that. Yeah. I think about that a lot, too, in, like, reference to the Bushes, especially. Because mm. I, like I feel like they're more recent. And then also, like, I was kind of able to see the impact of their, like, decision-making in office and, like, the policies they put in place. And then even like Bill Clinton with the like 1994, like the crime bill. I was working on the Hill when that happened. Wow. I was two years, I had graduated in 92. I was working on the Hill for the first black woman senator, mm -hmm. Carol Mosley Braun from Chicago. And most of the black electeds, of which I am now on the state level in Pennsylvania, um, supported the crime bill because there was rampant crime and there was this extraordinary urge to do something about it not do something that was truly corrective and well informed by evidence but we got to do something and it led to the further criminalization of black bodies i mean clinton um was really uh, the mastermind of many deeply problematic things yeah. in the carceral state and beyond immigration as well um so forth but that was a very difficult time. And it was a difficult time when I was here as well, because when I was here. You were here during the Reagan administration and the like. And Bush. And Bush. And Bush. So and I wrote about, I, I wrote for the Yale Daily News. I was a columnist and I wrote about, you know, George Bush's uh, policies. You know, George Bush, um, you know, was uh, part of Skull and Bones and uh, it was the feeding ground for. Um, uh, what would become the CIA here. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I was very critical of um, um, the first uh, 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 war in Iraq. Um, and it was, yeah, it, and also it was the precursor to the awfulness we're seeing today. There was an attack on... Um, the in 1993. What's that? What was the attack in 1993? Oh, no, what I'm talking about is the attack on um, what was called multiculturalism. Oh. Which is the uh, antecedent to DEI. Oh. So all of the, the conservatives who are pushing back against diversity, inclusion, equity, and so forth, um, the antecedent of that was multiculturalism. Oh, we need to 
embrace the Western pantheon, the you know Western sieve, uh, mm-hmm. and there's a big you know, tension on campus about what should Yale be promoting, mm-hmm. and so that tension was between really students of color and um, other more enlightened white students, and this notion of you know this conservative doctrine around you know. Uh, traditional studies and it, it was very tense on campus oh wow yeah that's wow I'm honestly at a loss for words just to think like how hostile Yale was like it's still hostile like now but just how hostile it was especially in that time period and like I kind of see like the like legacies of that still like reverberating, echoing into today, like with yeah. the with the affirmative action decision. Like, oh, and we were at the height of affirmative action. The push against affirmative action was ridiculous when we were here, which is ironic because in a previous generation, like the '70s, we had a really strong um, set of alums from the '60s and '70s. That's when affirmative action was really um, uh, that brought in so many people. Um, and it turned very quickly. So by the time we get to the 80s and uh, Reagan era and so forth, um, the push against affirmative action was ridiculous. And the irony is they let more white people whose parents and grandfathers, not parents, fathers, <laughs> right? Because Yale did not accept women until 1971, I believe. Um, their fathers, their uncles, um, older sibling, older brothers, grandparent, grandfathers, there were more of them accepted than black people. Wow. Right? So when we talk about affirmative action, we really should be being more precise with our language. We should say affirmative action um, for people of color because uh, there was always affirmative action for white men, and there always will be. Yeah, I have a lot, a lot of thoughts about that. I could talk for hours just about oh, how to make admissions equitable in an unequitable society. Yeah, that'll, oh, that'll just raise my blood pressure. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we're going to move on to the next question. So you're in New Haven right now because you attended the posthumous degree conferral ceremony for the men who will now be known as the first two black Yale alumni in history, Reverend James Pennington and Reverend Alexander Crummel. So what was your reaction when you found out about the university's decision to confer those degrees? I was pleasantly surprised because um, I've been fighting the fight since 1988 and did not anticipate them doing something like this. Um, It's important. And I was moved for a number of different reasons. Those two gentlemen, J.W.C. Pennington and Alexander Crummel, were running buddies with my ancestor. Oh, wow. They hung out like, you know, like we're hanging out at the house. They hung out in kind of radical black abolitionist circles and they were literate black folk Mm -hmm. at a time when most, most Americans, regardless of ethnicity, couldn't read and write. So they were very scholarly men who were also clergy. So they were all reverends. So Pennington, Crummel, and my ancestor, Amos Noah Freeman from Rahway, um, New Jersey. This was my great, great, great grandfather who I named my first son after. Wait, that's super sweet. Yeah, Aww. yeah, he's at Amherst College now. And uh, um, 
this this is one of my favorite ancestors and so i've been doing family history and genealogy for over 30 years shortly after i graduated from from yale and um when i saw that i'm like these these are my ancestors homeboys um i i gotta go and i want to be a part of this but there's another connection Amos Noah Freeman's wife, Christiana, mm -hmm. my great-great-great-grandmother, um, is a descendant of the man who Livingston Archway is named after in Branford College. Wow. So Philip Livingston gave a bunch of money to Yale Divinity School, and it's Yale Divinity School that has conferred this posthumous honorary you know, degree to, to Crummel and Pennington. So the guy who basically funded Yale Divinity School was the patriarch of a five-generation family of mass enslavers. Wow. So Philip Livingston um, had four sons who graduated from Yale. One of those sons, also named Philip, was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Philip's son... Philip Philip Livingston, yes, oh. that was his name. They were not they were not creative people. Yeah. Uh, Philip Philip emigrated to Jamaica uh, before the outbreak of the Revolutionary War, mm -hmm. and managed the the Livingston plantations that where they owned hundreds of black people. Philip Philip Livingston's son was Philip Henry Livingston, who was born in Jamaica, white guy, mm -hmm. born in Jamaica, moves to Manhattan to go to Columbia University, which was then called King's College. King's College was created specifically to educate and train the sons of New York merchants. And when you read about merchants, they were mostly enslavers. enslavers. They were yeah. enslavers, right. Merchants, is the, it's the nice word for enslavers. Enslavers, I, I don't say slave owners because I don't descend from slaves. I descend, descend from people. Mm -hmm. who were enslaved yeah. by enslavers. Yes. So uh, Philip Henry Livingston had a, a girl imported from one of the plantations in St. Mary Parish, Jamaica, Port mm -hmm. Maria. Mm -hmm. and that girl was named Barbara Williams. And um, he raped her. And they had Christiana, and Christiana is now featured across the street in the Yale Art Gallery in an exhibit. Her portrait is there, and the portrait of two of her daughters, one of whom is my great-great-grandmother, Mary Christiana, oh, wow. and her little sister is Adora Noah. And uh, what's so amazing is there's so few pictures of black folk whose identities are known, even more rare is black women and girls who had their photos taken. And this is, you know, in the 19th century. So the connection is just extraordinary with Pennington, with Crummel, with my ancestor Freeman and his wife Christiana and their daughters here at Yale. Mm -hmm. If I had known while I was an undergrad that Livingston Archway was named after a seventh great grandfather who was a mass human trafficker. I probably would have burnt this place down. I'm so glad I found <laughs> out after I graduated because wow. my my father in particular was 
always afraid I was not going to graduate because I was getting into activism and trouble. Good trouble, but he's like, get your degree. Yeah. <laughs> so I have like two, it's like mm -hmm. a two-parter. So first is like, how did you get into like researching your ge like your genealogy yeah. and like learning about your family lineage after attending Yale? And then what was your like, how did learning that you're a descendant of like a Philip Livingston, like how did yeah. like how did that like what was that reaction like for you? Like how yeah. did that like and how did that like impact how you like even like look back on like Yale? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I knew knew my folks and I knew their folks. So I knew all four of my grandparents and I was particularly close to my mother's mother. Um, so just talking with both grandmas and my, my, my mom's father, my uh, maternal grandfather, they had a lot of stories. Mm -hmm. So you just learn at an early age about these stories. And then you get to college and you provide, there's more context because you're learning about it. Being a black studies major, history no less you're like oh oh yeah my my great uncle went, went to lincoln with thurgood marshall like oh wow wow like you know, just connect all these connections and it made learning more meaningful to me so i was learning about history but i'm also learning about family history and my connection to our shared past which really influenced how I saw the world and how I saw myself in the world and what perhaps what small difference I could make, which ultimately, ultimately led to me running for public office. But when I was, you know, 24 and I found out my connection to the Livingston family, um, I was like, Oh my gosh, this is, I did genealogy to learn about my black ancestors. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm black. My folks are black. My grand folks are black. My great grandparents are black. My 16 great, great grandparents, all who were born in antebellum America were black. You get to that generation before Man. and that's when you find the white men, mm -hmm. all of whom were enslavers. There are no consensual relationships in my pedigree between black and white it's all rape Wow. it's all rape and so the thing about being a black genealogist is when you try to get information about your enslaved ancestors the best way to find out more about them is the enslaver who may also turn out to be an ancestor wow. because there are few assets and it's difficult for us to refer to our people as assets but they were financial assets there are very few white people who could afford to own another human being and even smaller population of white folk who could own many black people and like rich people today you document all of your assets quite well because it's what creates your wealth so we can learn about our enslaved ancestors by studying the people who own them mm -hmm. but when you discover that those people who own them may also be part of your lineage it's difficult so as a 24 year old black man um discovering these men in your family who are just scum yeah by any means and you're like well you know we can't be judgmental it was a different era but you know what they were white abolitionists who, like, who, who were saying the same thing. Same thing, since the 1600s. Yeah. 
Okay, so there were white people say, no, that's wrong. So, um, yeah, they were trash. But in genealogy and family history, we have to take the good with the bad. We can't all say we descend from Frederick Douglass or Harriet Tubman or, like, we have all kinds of stuff in our past. Mm -hmm. And we have to have the emotional maturity to embrace it all and learn from it all. It can't just be, you know, all milk and honey. Yeah. I honestly am at a loss for words. That's like, <laughs> that's so like, ama- it's so interesting just to like, just to like to go that far back. Like I'm interested in potentially learning about my family genealogy because I feel like there's so much I just don't know. Like I just go back up to my great grandmother who I, she was alive when I was like born and mm-hmm. like I, I spent like much of my childhood with her, like mm-hmm. just like being around her. So like, I don't know who came before her I can kind of infer like from southern Louisiana we were enslaved, enslaved. but potentially potentially right. yeah. yeah I mean that is a that but then is also a like you have like assumption yeah then also you have like but then on my dad's side there's like po- possible like a creole heritage there sure. that I'm like still trying to like parse through so that's wow so it, it's considered a lifelong journey like mm-hmm. I'm 53 I've been doing it for you know 30 years you're never going to be done. Yeah. But you will always have the opportunity to find something that can you can derive meaning from, right? And um, you can start now. Start where you are. So what I did was I just interviewed my my grandparents. That's it. Talk to your elders. Mm-hmm. Write down their stories. You know, take pictures, video. You have all this technology that I didn't have. When I started, this was before the internet. When I graduated, there was no internet. There was a couple of people who did what was the precursor to email, and they emailed oh. like 17 people in the world or something. But wow. So I, there was no internet, you know, any of that, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, none of that stuff existed when I was here. So, and when I started genealogy, I had my MacBook. And I was a super you know, Mac had, um, <laughs> since 88, I had uh, genealogy software, but no internet. And I would go into old county courthouses and national archives in DC. And I would do research in the actual places and looking at the actual documents. You can go to ancestry.com now and do more in a weekend than, um, what would take me a year. Wow. So there, there are resources. And this is the perfect segue to my next question. So there have been so many American descendants of slaves or generational African-Americans tracing their roots like you have been doing in recent years. And also, you probably know this, another Yale alum, Dr. Henry Louis Gates, has a TV show called Finding Your Roots where he kind of does research of tracing the lineage of different celebrities. And you kind of got at this like earlier, like why do you think this is like super important, like doing this kind of research, especially kind of like given some of the like current like movements we have going on where you have people who are trying to rewrite and erase black history from schools. Yeah, like Florida, right? Um, yeah. So, yeah, so, um, and Skip Gates, you know, is also a, a, a Yale grad. I think he mm-hmm. was in Calhoun too, actually. Um, and uh, yeah, we've crossed paths before. Um, so um, it's important because we, as human beings, we are social beings and we want to have a sense of connectedness. We want to belong to 
community. It, it's our nature. And for black folk, we have been estranged from that due to slavery and institutional racism. So finding that connection and affirming our reality um, has value. And so the, the beauty of reconnecting, even posthumously, so I'm reconnecting with the ancestors who I've never been physically connected with because they mm -hmm. died centuries before I was even thought of. But I have this intimate relationship now with my ancestors because I'm following their, I'm, I'm tracing their footsteps and the footsteps that led towards justice, I'm following them and then taking it to another level, even if it's just a few steps forward as inspired by their work. Like I can read the words of my great, great, great grandfather talking about racism mm -hmm. in the 1850s. That's nuts. And some of the things that he said, you could have pulled from today. And so that's, that's difficult, right? Like we're still, have we moved anywhere? Yes, we have, but we saw, still have so much further to go. And there were people who were committed to this you know, for centuries. Mm -hmm. So we are part of this extraordinary legacy that transcends any one individual or any one family or any one campus. But we have to learn from the missteps and accomplishments of those who came before us. Wow, yeah. So also like as a fellow, African-American studies major, what does it mean for like the stories of Pennington and Crummel and like your ancestors, Reverend Freeman, like mm -hmm. how they've been so buried so deeply in the past and have kind of just been like, like basically rendered invisible within the archive and just other, and, like just like within like the general like understanding of Yale. So like how, like what does it mean that these stories are like, are now like coming out like now yeah. after like centuries of being sure. kind of like. Well, one of the things that we have, that we do in this culture, in this U.S. culture, is we individuate um, progress and power. Um, we put it all on the shoulders of, of King or Douglas or Malcolm mm -hmm. or Angela, or right? And it, it was never about those individuals. It was about movement and movement is born out of collective action. So when we think about Harriet Tubman or Frederick Douglass or such, they had a crew. They were, they were black and other abolitionists, white abolitionists, I mean. But there were black abolitionists who like rolled deep. They were tight, they were thorough. You're, I'm reading agendas of meetings from the 1830s. Oh, wow. Like they were tight right <laughs> and like this is what we're trying to do in this meeting we're going to move this forward we're going to talk about abolition we're going to talk about temperance we're going to talk about voting rights whatever like that's like powerful stuff and so they were never alone some rose up because perhaps of their eloquence um their proximity to institutional power um but there were always people who were doing amazing things that just because uh, Frederick Douglass was the most photographed black person, you know, in history up until that time, like 
there are people who he respected. There's people who he, he learned from. Um, and there are people behind the scenes of the folks who were obscured who helped as well. These are generally ordinary people put in extraordinary circumstances mm -hmm. and did amazing things, but not alone. Wow. I really like that. Like, and the like, and I think that the recurring theme of collective action has just like, it's just existed for so long and we see it like in the 1800s you saw it in like the ninth in the 1960s with the creation of the house and then you see it, you saw it like with your with your generation in like the 80s and 90s mm -hmm. and then even like into the 2010s with like the collective action for like the creation of the ERM department and then also the um and also like the removal of like the the late like the in 2015 there was a um a like a worker in the in the <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> there was a worker who, um, while he was like working in Grace Hop in Grace Hopper, he like threw he like threw I don't know if it was like a brick or something into yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Into the glass window, and that kind of sparked this like 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 sparked some like. I'm trying to meet action. that brother, by the way. So yeah. if you know him, I think he still works at Yale. I don't know where, but yeah, because I, I heard that he was fired, and then people said, "No, you got to bring this brother back." Yeah. And then I, I heard that he had. <laughs> that he had heard at least about what I had done in the 80s um, about removing uh, these images. And when I went to, to Hopper yesterday, you know, went to the dining hall, went to see what was remaining because um, there, were, there were two field workers who were picking cotton, yeah. and beside them on both sides were animals. Oh. And so the juxtapositioning of black people between animals and it was right where you get your toast it was up but it was very high up so it's not at eye it was not at eye level so um a lot of people spent four years in calhoun without ever seeing it but because once i saw what was there and i knew who was named after i went out of my way to look everywhere to see what other images and by the way i remember seeing a black man eating a piece of watermelon smiling in a stained glass window at Sterling Memorial Library. And oh. I, every time I come to campus, I look for it. Um, it's, uh, I don't know if it was taken down, but I have not been able to find it. Um, there was scaffolding on Sterling Memorial Library for many years, so mm -hmm. I might check it out today. But there's wow. all kinds of stuff buried, like hidden in plain sight that where there's no context. And I think that's the thing I want to emphasize the most. We need to contextualize our experience as black folk at Yale. We need to recontextualize the story of Yale. We should, listen, no matter what people find out about Yale, it will still be an extraordinarily influential institution yeah. for generations to come. It's not gonna lose its billions Right, it's not going to lose its its world standing. Just own up to it. And yesterday at the event honoring Pennington and Crummel, mm -hmm. President Salovey, who was a former professor of mine, senior year. Oh wow! Um, I've said wow a lot, but like you're <laughs> but you're saying so. Well, he many taught a class in '88 and '92, mm -hmm. an intro psych class that was so big. Battel Chapel was where we had to have the class. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. So I took it senior year. It was really good. He was really funny, very <laughs> thoughtful. And um, fast forward, that was 92. What's this, 2023? 20, so yeah, 
31 years later, I'm in the same Battelle Chapel with Professor Salovey, who's you know now the president, who's resigning. And he apologized on behalf of Yale University for the indignities thrust upon Reverends Pennington and Crummel. And then the, the, the white dean of the Divinity School thanked President Salovey for being the first Yale president to ever apologize for past uh, misdeeds. And that blew me away. Like, it's taken 2023 for a Yale president to apologize for the institutional injustices and, and it, that was that was deep I wish the viewers could like just see my face my jaw is <laughs> I'm like what so yeah. I didn't realize that Peter Salovey was the first to like apologize and my question now is like what did that apology like mean to you and like what do you think like it means for like Yale to just now reckon like in a very public way reckon with its history in this very public manner i think it's on the right path we're not where we need to be but it's one heck of a start because it was not just an apology they conferred posthumous honorary degrees they didn't have to do that they did it and therefore adding pennington and crummel to the long list of influential black alumni mm -hmm. right so that's great the other piece is that what is the opportunity cost of keep of marginalizing black folk institutionally at Yale? And the other piece is they were involved to greater or lesser extent with the move to create a Negro college, mm -hmm. a national Negro college in, in 1831 Haven. in New Haven. Yes. And so um, the th the things that when W.B. Du Bois was talking about Pan-Africanism and ultimately, um, and before that, um, helped establish the NAACP, mm -hmm. that was influenced by the work of Pennington, Crummel, Freeman, Douglas, all of these black abolitionists starting in 1831 through 1860, I believe, in the Colored Convention Movement mm -hmm. where black folk organized and it influenced pretty much influenced the creation, like I said, the NAACP, the civil rights movement, all of these things. And one of the first things they wanted to do was because some of these black abolitionists were well-educated. They wanted to create a Negro college and they were gonna do it in New Haven. And a bunch of white folk connected to Yale was like, mm-mm, and they shut it down. If there was a Negro college in New Haven, it and it there were appropriate funds for it to flourish. Can you imagine how many generations of black folk from all over the country could have benefited from that? Well, we can put a number on that. We can put a financial figure on that. That is a form of reparations just around formal education. Mm -hmm. And the people who are part of this who uh, on the wrong side of history, Yale, front and center, has a lot of money. They can put in money into a fund to benefit historically black colleges and universities, many of whom come to Yale for their master's degrees, PhDs, et cetera. Mm -hmm, yes. A lot. 
That's something that we can do. Yale should lead on that because Yale was responsible for killing the Negro College. So it, this is not just about changing a name. This is not about conferral of a degree to someone who died 200 years ago. That's part of it because symbol matter, symbolism matters too. Yes. But so does substance. And so what is the next step? We have to tell these stories. And these stories shouldn't just be told and heard by black folk. Anyone who comes to our campus needs to know this. Mm -hmm. Everyone. This needs to be front and center. Yale, we need to understand that Yale's power and influence and wealth was born from its complicity in institutional racism and slavery. Yes. There, this wealth, and it's the same about the country. This country would not be a world leader, whatever that means to you, if it were not for the financial wealth uh, born uh, off of the unpaid labor of our black ancestors. That is a fact. This is, this is wealth born of uh, stolen labor on stolen land. Mm -hmm. Yes. Wow. And I think with that, that ends our discussion. Thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak with me on the podcast, speak with us on the podcast. Such, I I think I'd, I'm gonna like go eat lunch and I'm just gonna like sit in silence. Because of <laughs> everything, like everything I've just learned and everything you've just said, this was truly amazing and transformative. And I hope like the viewers, like they just like, they get to experience and like this like this just transformative conversation so well thank you so much um I i'm honored to to do this uh, i think this is my first podcast oh wow <laughs> and uh if i can put in a quick shameless plug yes of course of course i'm coming back to campus on november 16th yes. uh, thursday november 16th to speak about this same thing um yale's connection to slavery and that connection with my ancestors and connecting it to the uh, Livingston connection, who, by the way, um, the Bushes descend and the Roosevelts descend from the Livingstons as well. So, <laughs> yeah. You should go be like, hey, cousin. I, I have, actually. That's oh. a, I'm going to the Livingston family reunion tomorrow oh. on the estate where my ancestor was an uh, enslaved seamstress. And her wow. photograph, again, is across the street at the Yale Art Gallery. And so when I'm coming back at November 16th, it is with um, the Yale Art Gallery um, and their exhibit, Micheline uh, Thomas's exhibit, um, that features the portraits of black women and girls largely. Um, so I'm trying to tie all this together. And I'm hoping that that, um, that event can be housed can be hosted by the house. Wow. So maybe you can help me get it here. No, definitely, definitely. Thank wonderful. you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Yes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Welcome to the Afim House. This podcast is a project of and sponsored by the Afro-American Cultural Center at Yale. A special thank you to our guest, Chris Rabb, for speaking with us and sharing his experiences at Yale and his family history. Representative Rabb will be returning to Yale on November 16th to speak about the Livingstons and Yale's connection to slavery, as well as those histories and connection to Micheline Thomas's display of Black women's portraiture at the Yale Art Gallery. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and share it, as well as our other episodes. And 
until next time, continue to uplift and celebrate the amazing Black stories that this world has to offer.